0: people do look at artists as people who are still pursuing childhood dreams and haven't settled into the business of being adults yes. and being responsible.
1: Unless they've hit the art lottery.
0: In, yeah. Unless they are uh, successful yes. in the way that, uh, you know, a banker or, an, or a lawyer is successful and, and very few artists achieve that yeah. kind of success. So the rest of us get seen as failures and see ourselves as failures.
1: Hello everybody, welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about creativity and the need for creative people to be seen. See that's why we call it a podcast about fame, that's, that's way too complicated a subtitle, but that's really what it's about and what my friend Tom has been telling me that he thinks it's about for a long time now, and I agree with him. So welcome to that. I'm Jamie, and this is episode 63. My guest today is writer Sarah Wisby, and it's the first episode that features recordings from our first ever live show back in June in Greenfield, Mass., in which Sarah, along with Zach Dragano, Mira Bartok, Old Pam, Beth Lissick, and Ansel Appleton performed and this feature this episode will feature a conversation with sarah about creativity and the need to be seen among other things along with the two wonderful stories she read at the live performance a couple other little details and we'll get right to that uh sarah uh, recently moved to western mass where i live uh, from san francisco where i also moved from and where we had A zillion friends in common, but really have become friends since she moved here. Here's my abbreviated version of the biography from her website. Sarah Fran Wisby, she sometimes goes by her middle name as well, writes poetry, short fiction, memoir, and essays, preferring always to deepen and subvert genre by way of the hybrid form. Her book Viva Loss was published in 2008, by Small Desk Press. She can also be found in the Encyclopedia Project, Volume Two, F through K, or maybe it's F blank blank K, for which she was honored to write the entry for Fuck. She performs her work all over the San Francisco Bay Area and now all over the East Coast, including coming in September, She will be reading somewhere in Brooklyn that is yet to be announced because she has just had a piece accepted in the upcoming edition of the print version of McSweeney's. And we talk about that a little bit too. This episode does have adult content as, as it's called. So it's a great episode. If you have a child who you want to start to learn about sex, I recommend it. We spoke in Greenfield in August and as much as my mother and others she always sneaks into every episode have told me not to do this I got to give a I have to give a little disclaimer here and an apology for recording us in a big room with me sitting too far away from the mic so Sarah sounds great pardon my reverbiness and enjoy the episode So the idea is to talk a little bit about performance and being seen and the the show that we put on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't know if you want to give a little more of what you would want. If there's anything you want to tell people about the two pieces you read either before Mm -hmm. or after they are played for them.
0: Mm.
1: And this Um, week I'll put it either before or
0: after. Yeah, I don't. (laughs) <laughs> I don't they say it all. I mean, I,
1: they do except for the name.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't obviously, obviously you I'm not going to divulge the name cuz obviously it's fiction <clears throat> and the person that character is based on is is not a bad person who I would wish to malign in any way. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, mm-hmm. just someone I had a less than optimal experience Mm -hmm. with that made me think about things that made me want to write a piece, which is Mm -hmm. ultimately a great outcome. So I never have any regrets Mm -hmm. about any liaison that leads to um, a thoughtful writing experiment. Mm -hmm. I have two short... Uh, stories for you. Uh, One is short-long and one is short-short. And uh, The first one is uh, about a a one-night stand with a semi-famous musician. (laughs) It's called The Overnight Guest. As soon as the sun was up and a few birds had chirped, The Overnight Guest was up and moving about the room, putting on his clothes. You're not staying for breakfast. It wasn't a question, though I tried putting a question like lilt at the end. That's not my style, man. As soon as he said this, he giggled, acknowledging its ridiculousness, which didn't make it any less true. I watched as he lifted his guitar from the armchair and nestled it in its velvet-lined case, so gentle, so sweet. After he pecked me on the cheek and left, I drifted back into sleep and woke with a half hour to shower and get to work. In the shower, I scrubbed briskly and sang, I ain't gonna study romantic disappointment no more. Ain't gonna study romantic disappointment no more. Ain't gonna study romantic disappointment no more. (sighs) I enjoyed the awkward challenge of squeezing seven syllables into a slot meant for just one. I'm always trying to squeeze too much into life, or out of it, or whatever. I read too much into little things. For instance, last summer when a guy left a thread torn from the cuff of his denim jacket wrapped around the window crank in the passenger seat of my car, I thought it meant, wait for me. So I waited and waited. Sometimes futility is a good teacher. For instance, I once learned a lot trying to explain my gun tattoos to a Quaker I happened to be at the beach with. (laughs) Basically, what I learned in that situation is that I know nothing. (laughs) The overnight guest was not famous per se, but he was certainly more famous than I was. The whole reason I knew he was no longer living with his wife and child was that he had mentioned it in a radio interview I heard while moving my car for street cleaning. <laughs> his voice coming through the speakers while I sipped my coffee and cleared away the crushed pink blossoms that had fallen on the windshield from the plum, plum tree overhead was one of those moments I liked to stockpile. You know just in case we fell deeply in love. I could tell the story of when I decided to ask him out, and this ordinary moment would be infused with potency. When I got home, I dug out a picture that had been taken of the two of us talking after a show, leaning on the brick wall outside of a club. I had looked cute that night and performed well, and he told me he had read my book and liked it. There seemed no reason on Earth we couldn't connect as equals, two tender-hearted humans moving through the world. In our email exchange, he remembered who I was and thanked me for contacting him. He would love to get together. He also warned me that he is kind of a mess right now and maybe not the best person to date. These being lines I've used myself on many potential suitors, I thought, wow, we have so much in common. A mutual friend told me he was not known for his kindness to women. This was vague, but I didn't press for more information. I tend to discount this friend because I felt she was not above sabotaging me out of jealousy. Once, in a fake pretend rage after pretending, I'm sorry, once in a fake pretend rage after finding out I had bought the kind of car she wanted, she had bitten me hard on my upper arm. While we were fucking, the overnight guest stopped to check in with me. Are you okay? You sound like you're crying. Oh no, those are just the sounds I make. I appreciated his concern, but the fact that he had to check in made me feel even further away from him. You might want to think that having sex with a person is the closest you can get to them, when really it's like anything else, playing cards or eating pizza. Actually, earlier in the night, when we were playing cards and eating pizza, I had felt closer to him, maybe because there was more eye contact. Now, I rarely come the first time I have sex with someone because I'm shy about asking for what I want, because what I want is something that evolves over time with the person I'm with. I'm well aware that to stay afloat on the treacherous seas of modern sexual capitalism, a woman must be the captain of her own orgasm. Believe me, I take full responsibility. But I also reserve the right to find it odd when someone I'm in bed with shows zero curiosity about what might steer my ship in that direction. Later, I heard him fumbling around. Huh, where'd it go? It seemed the condom was no longer on his person. I joined in the search, and it turned out to be deep inside my person, wadded up like a piece of chewing gum. I'm not going to worry about that, I said emphatically, throwing it in the wastebasket, and then proceeded to worry about it all the way down the worry road. Being over 40 with one remaining ovary and never having been pregnant, that road gets trod more in fantasy than in actual fear. Still, my theory of why I've been so boy-crazy lately is that my body is making a last-ditch effort to become pregnant before my eggs get hopelessly scrambled. Lying there in the dark, I decided if it came to an abortion, I wouldn't tell my overnight guest about it, because it would only make him sad, and he is so deeply sad already. (laughs) Then I decided to keep the baby and raise it with another better man. I had someone in mind, and it made me smile to think about him while lying in bed to someone else. (laughs) I try to have at least three men in fantasy rotation at all times, so I'm never without someone to think about while lying in bed next to someone who's just disappointed me. Then I decided it would be a mistake to keep the baby, that the better man would likely leave me for a better woman, who would never ask him to raise someone else's child, and who would still be young enough to have his baby, if that's what he wanted. Yep, abortion was a clear path for someone like me in a situation like mine. <laughs> then I remembered the men I saw that week in front of Planned Parenthood carrying signs that said, men robbed of fatherhood. They walked the picket line hunched over and defeated looking in blue denim and white sneakers. But the overnight guest is already a father. No one can rob him of that. (laughs) Of course, when I saw those men with those signs, I did not feel compassion for them. I thought, go knock someone up who wants to have your baby, fuck nuts. Going through it all in my head, I began to cry a little for my own lost motherhood. Though I've never been one of those people who wants to have a baby at all costs, to the point where they would do it alone in a cave or on public assistance, I have sometimes thought I would do it with the right person if we had plenty of money. I made sure to cry silently so as not to re-arouse the concern of the overnight guest, at least until I heard him start to snore. In the middle of the night, I heard him moving around the apartment and thought he might leave without saying goodbye. Then he came back in the bedroom with his guitar case, opened it, and sat in the velvet armchair by the window, playing and singing softly. There was just enough moonlight coming through the curtain for me to see his fingers stroking the strings like you would a soft animal. He had put on his underwear and sat with his legs folded up under him. Leaning forward over his guitar with his hair hanging in his face, he looked like a little boy. One of the songs he played that night was a Bob Dylan song, the one that has my name in it. And since after that night, I've never heard from him again. I've chosen to believe he sang that song as a form of apology, though I have no way of knowing if he even realized I was awake and listening. Thank you, guys.
1: And how about the other piece?
0: Yes, the monkeys, the chimps. Yes. Um... That was based... Fictional? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, But based on like a, like a, you know, minor event where uh, there was, at one time, somebody was thinking about making a movie or series about The Lusty Lady, where I was working at the time. In San Francisco. In San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And the, the, and so we, we made like a, a running um, cast list on the whiteboard of like who you know, who you wanted to play you. And I, and I said Susan Sarandon in that case as well. And- um, I can totally see it. Yeah, yeah. We were both quite a bit younger then. Um, but she would have done a bang up job mm-hmm. playing a saucy stripper. Yes. Yeah. No question. But yeah, doesn't everybody have that fantasy? Oh, I did have someone play me in a movie. That's right. I almost forgot. <laughs> this out. is my true claim to yeah, fame, Jamie Berger. Um, I, um, I mean, it's sad. It's sad but true that this is as close as it gets to fame. Um, but Michelle T wrote a book called mm-hmm. Valencia yeah. about the her experiences and the mission dyke scene. And uh, there's a character in that book who um, is referred to as the slut in the produce aisle. <laughs> the I, I can't remember. Anyway, I remember thinking, God, she really held back in her descriptions of me because in real life, you know, I started dating her girlfriend and then, she eventually turned into my girlfriend and it was uh it was it was a messy you know not pretty situation the way so many things were in our 20s and um and i um was not, you know obviously was not surprised to turn up later in that book as like the bad guy and uh mm-hmm. She writes about it. It's funny. She writes about it a little bit in her most recent book, which is an incredible book of uh, essays called Against Memoir. Uh, And in the title piece, it's the last one in the book, she writes about how many regrets she has about writing memoir and how when when you tell the story of your own life and when you set it down in black and white and publish it, it's like, it becomes this like reality that if you hadn't written it down, it would continue to evolve and change in your mind. But when you tell the story and, and commit it to public record, it's like, then you're like not allowed to revise it or change Mm -hmm. it or something um, in certain ways. And I mean, obviously she has continued to evolve and change her, uh, you know, edit her life story the way we all do. Um, but she was talking about the difficulty of having had this long period of her life. Like, that's just kind of like hermetically sealed. Like, this is what happened and the dangers of that. And, um, and she, uh, yeah. And so, I mean, I don't know that she still feels bad about that portrayal. It would be silly if she did because it was so long ago and it was so... Didn't harm me, you know. Um, But that is like... You know, somebody... There was a movie made of the book Uh and uh, this cute young woman in San Francisco played my character and (laughs) then she would she would come through my line at the grocery store and I'd be like, this is so weird. I'm like, did you ever talk? To her I, did, I did. I yeah. did. I told her, I told her that she had played me in a movie. <laughs> and
1: how did she react?
0: <laughs> she was like, Oh, you know, I mean, it, it's not surprising. We're yeah. all in San Francisco. Um, she didn't like, she didn't like hug me or, you know, want my phone number or anything like that. But she was, she was tickled. I uh-huh. think, um, I'd certainly be tickled if I were in her position. Well, I was more, I was more tickled. This, uh, this last piece is called Movie. It was rumored our lives were being optioned for a Hollywood picture. I wanted Susan Sarandon to play me with the right balance of gravitas and fun. But soon, the news leaked that we would all be played by chimpanzees, (laughs) though we could donate articles of our own clothing to the costume department if we wished. The movie was shot on location. The production crew arrived in their silver trailers, shut down the whole town, and replaced us with our chimp selves. We could stay to watch the filming if we were silent. It was a joy to watch the chimpanzees perform our jobs. They were especially cute riding lawnmowers, stamping government forms, conducting trains, and serving banana cream pie at the diner. (laughs) It was slightly less enjoyable to watch them executing criminals at the prison, humping a brass pole on stage at the Ruby Room, or injecting other animals with pharmaceutical compounds at the lab just outside of town. It was easy to see why they'd cast the chimps. They could mimic any human emotion, but didn't get stuck in them the way humans do. Their grins were easy and loose, but when one snapped shut, there was no trace of mirth in the solemn face that followed. And what may have been their most compelling feature, they were non-union. <laughs> I thought the one who played me in the chiffon scar-fried linter serving banana cream pie at the diner cracked her gum a little too loudly, overacting some stereotype of a waitress. Though... Who knows, maybe Susan Sarandon would have done the same. <laughs> maybe I myself had been overacting my role all these years without knowing it, flirting with the customers, shaking my fist at the cook with whom I was secretly in love. Was I even a smoker, or did it just look good with the uniform? I arrived home from the chute to find the cook in my bed. She knew nothing of my feelings for her, only that I would agree to a quick lay from time to time. You're so resistant, she murmured, even as I gave her everything. Later, I couldn't sleep and went outside to smoke. The chimp who played me looked great smoking, a jawline built for the French inhale. They filmed her out by the dumpsters watching the sunset. A single tear ran down her leathery face. I watched that scene over and over. The whole town agrees the movie is crap. Pablum for the feeble-minded, a straight-to-video affair. But you can never find it at the rental place. It's always out. Thank you.
1: Somewhere in there, you said the kind of thing that everybody says, except the people who would never say such a thing. I'm with you and the kind of person who would say that it's sad, but true that this is as close to fame as I got. Mm. So obviously (laughs) we care. Mm. You know, I don't think, Mm -hmm. I think if I, if I, maybe if I, if I interrogate you like I am right now, Mm -hmm. you might say, well, not sad, but you said it. So what does that mean? Say oh, it's sad well, the truth. I mean, is-
0: obviously, if we're going to talk about fame, like, I would like to be famous for my own writing, rather than being a character in somebody else's yeah. book. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: That's the sound of dog otter walking around the room.
0: Click, click, click.
1: We could talk about that for a minute. Yeah. I'll because try. you're about to have, is it your first... Publication in? In, McSweeney. in McSweeney's, yes. Which mm-hmm. is achieving a kind of, if not fame, <laughs> a kind of 90s cool, 90s and early 2000s, <laughs> and still to this day, but certainly yeah. more people of our advanced ages. Remember uh, that being I like a I still really, deal. you know, aspire to, if I start writing again, I had one thing in the online once, mm-hmm. uh, but it was a guest columnist for Steve, Steve Elliott's, uh, Elliott's poker column. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: Twice, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
1: Um, but I, I'd like to... It, it means something, and you're going to be in the print. McSweeney's, and it's coming out.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: Probably this month?
0: It is coming out this month, and there will be a reading in Brooklyn that mm-hmm. I get to go to and read it at. And so the the to me, the most interesting and ironic part about this particular publication is that my piece is being printed on a balloon which is this very ephemeral thing you know it's like you blow it up and it pops so to me it's like the perfect metaphor for Mm -hmm. publication in general (laughs) it's this thing that's like momentary, it, it gets inflated and inflated. And then, you know, either it shrivels or it explodes or, but at any rate, it's not something that can last. Um, and in fact, you know, in the case of a balloon, it's made out of plastic. So it will last in the sense that no plastic ever, uh, truly goes away, but it's not going (laughs) to exist as a printed (laughs) thing. Um, (laughs) Uh, I, I intend to, um, I intend to milk the, the, this opportunity as much as I can by making a series of YouTube videos. I think I told you already. No. Um, but, uh, everything that one can do with a balloon. So, I mean, the, the first most basic is just to blow it up until it explodes in my face. Um, and then, The other thing that I think we should actually do at the reading is to rent a helium tank and uh, inhale helium and then read our pieces in helium voice. Because that would be very twee and McSweeney's is nothing if not uh, twee (laughs) sort of publication.
1: I'm sure one could Google that, but do you know the details Mm -hmm. of when when and where?
0: I don't. It hasn't been actually set yet. It looks like it'll be September 16th. It's going to be part of the Brooklyn Book Fair. That's all I know.
1: Have you been submitting stuff to them on and off over the years, or did this happen to how did I this have end up? I have
0: never submitted to them. I very rarely submit to anything. And this thing came to me randomly. They weren't accepting submissions. Mm-hmm. Um, my friend Mimi Locke, mm-hmm. who's an incredible writer, uh, and who I went to grad school with at SF State. She works for um, uh, Voice of Witness, which is an uh, amazing book series. Uh, oh, I should have I should have planned on how to uh, say what she does a little better. Voice of Witness is an incredible series that does um, uh, interviews people and then does like oral histories with, you know uh immigrants workers uh people whose voices are you know really really truly need Mm -hmm. to be heard and um and Dave Eggers is the kind of managing editor of that book publishing thing too so she's uh she's tight with Dave um I don't know if she's or not but she (laughs) she knows she knows what's up uh in that corner of the publishing world. And so she knew they were planning a issue of, uh, of very short stories and, and she thought of me. And that's like just so generous when somebody does that. Yes. You know, I feel so indebted to people, to anyone who's ever thought of me. <laughs> <laughs> unprompted I would too and passed and yet, my work along to somebody else yeah they're like it's like little literary angels I'm
1: sure it gave her so much joy to do it
0: I mean she was she she was thrilled yeah um to help out and I will be thrilled too if I'm ever in a position to help her out because it does feel good
1: yeah'm mm-hmm. i I'm, I'm a big believer in I, that there's no such thing as altruism. I, I do good things sometimes, but it's only because it makes me feel good.
0: Yeah, you do good yeah. things for selfish yeah. reasons. Like we all yeah. do.
1: Which is fine. <laughs> it's totally fine. Yeah. Well, I hope I can come down to Brooklyn that night.
0: Oh yeah, that would be fun. Yeah.
1: That would be great. Yeah.
0: I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to stay with Beth, Beth Lissick.
1: <laughs> oh nice. <laughs> hey Beth. Hey
0: yeah. Beth. I'll make sure she knows uh... this
1: episode is up. <laughs> I, I was going to talk about you as a performer, as a reader, because I'd mm-hmm. never seen you. You seemed to really enjoy it, and I didn't. Mm-hmm. You were you were so comedic, and your mm-hmm. timing was such that of someone who
0: performs a lot, but I mm-hmm. don't think you do. I did. You did. I used to perform a lot uh, in the Bay Area, and um, for for a few years there, it was it was a real focus it was the bulk of what i did Uh um i mean you know not probably not more than once a month Uh but but that's a that's a lot for a literary performer in yeah Uh, so i was i was and it is one of my greatest pleasures
1: me too. I was going to ask yeah. you why. Cause I don't really know why if I ask myself.
0: Well, for me, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that writing is this pretty lonely activity and you might be, you might be writing with an audience in mind, but until you actually connect with that audience, it, it, the, the payoff isn't really there. Um, and for someone like me like I'm basically an introvert most of the time but I like most people, I enjoy okay. attention. So the so I don't I don't love getting up and speaking like extemporaneously. Like that's very nerve-wracking to me. But if I have a script, if I have my own if I'm delivering my own work that I've worked on to the point where I feel confident, in what I have to present, um, I can have a lot of fun with it and I can even become like kind of a ham. Hmm. Uh, I can crack jokes. I can, yeah, I can do all these things that I don't normally do. Um, because I have a, a platform to do so.
1: Um, well, I'm glad I gave you one. For oh, that me too. Year. That
0: was delightful. Um, That was my Greenfield debut, and I'm still living off the glory.
1: (laughs) And are you still hoping, planning to start?
0: I am. A little
1: back information. You moved here how long ago? I moved
0: here a year and a half ago uh, from San Francisco. I bought my house a year ago. I'm a slow mover, so I feel like I'm finally getting settled in enough to you know, make some decisions, put down some roots. I've finally decided I think I'm staying. <laughs> like, I don't think I'm gonna move back to the Bay Area. Um Yay. I know, it's great. But yeah, so I'm so I'm relatively new in town, but I do want to find ways to participate in the literary world here and Greenfield needs, uh, a a reading series. When I first got here, they were doing a little, um, poetry open mic at Seymour Mm -hmm. that I went to. That was really fun. Uh, but the, the, the poet who worked at Seymour moved on to other things and Mm -hmm. nobody else picked that up. So, uh, yeah, I want to, I want to start a reading series and it would be nice to pair with, a um, with a local, uh, who knows more people here than I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would like to try to draw people in from uh, from the cities, but that's not always uh, no. easy to <laughs> do. So,
1: But getting one person, you know, we got Beth
0: to come up for that show. I know. I Having know. you
1: in the show, I'm sure it helped.
0: I told you that the, um, the name of the reading series. No. Mouthfeel. Oh, you did. Yes. <laughs> I really love it. I came up with that name a few years ago and I wrote it in a journal I had at the time and I drew a picture of like a big juicy mouth of a cigarette hanging out of it and promptly like forgot all about it mm-hmm. and until recently I was thumbing through old journals. I was yeah. like, yes.
1: Well, I could also see that as the name for an accompanying journal or a zine. Oh, yeah. Thing. Yeah, mouthfeel.
0: Mouthfeel. Mm-hmm. So evocative. Yes.
1: I think of your book as a great success because my, one of my fantasies is to just make one lovely written object mm-hmm. to, yeah. And I feel like if once I do or did that, I would probably want more, mm-hmm. but I think about my favorite record albums and fa- or favorite books by person mm-hmm. who, who only wrote the one book, and to yeah. me, that's more important than fame. That there are people yeah. out there who cherish this one thing, and people cherish yeah. that book. I do,
0: I know, um, I know, yeah, no, I, I do too. And uh, and I think, yeah, I think that that was all I ever wanted, huh? You know, yeah, so so I got what I wanted, um, and it is enough in a, you know, in a certain extent it is enough, but then, you know, life goes on and you have to, (laughs) you have to create Mm -hmm. new goals. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think I did decide, well, okay. So I did that. I published a book that I believed in that people who encountered it really enjoyed, but it was a very small press with a very small print run. And it's, now it's out of print, and I have the last four copies, you know. Mm-hmm. Um.
1: Yeah, that's like uh, my Beaux Arts book. But... <laughs> yeah. By giving you a book? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I have the last copies on earth.
0: But yeah, no, that was a tremendous success. And that was right after I got out of grad school. And that was my graduate thesis that somebody approached me and asked if they could publish. So, you know, all, like all of the good things that have happened to me, they've just kind of come my way the things that I'm aiming towards now are things that I'm going to have to work a little harder for. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's probably good and definitely challenging and, you know,
1: do you mean writing things as well? as?
0: Yeah. I mean, writing, writing goals, you know, finding a, you know, writing, uh, uh, a book of short stories. That's not, you know, that's like, a marketable, writing a marketable book. <laughs> um,
1: I wish I could help.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I can read and give
0: mm-hmm. feedback.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <clears throat> it's a funny goal, isn't it? Mm-hmm. To write something that, write something with the idea of this is going to fit into somebody's idea of something that's going to sell to yeah. a bunch of people.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, it's uh it's a, a tricky thing to do to yourself when you're yeah. trying to be
1: creative. <laughs> I, I did it a few years ago. And mm-hmm. I had an agent mm-hmm. for nonfiction based on expanding from a peep show. The mm-hmm. essay. And she really liked it. And She shopped it all around to all of me and she had, and, and nobody bit. And mm-hmm. I could have gone back and reworked it. And I decided not to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said I'd never do that again. Mm-hmm. And then back in the beginning of this year, I had the idea of of either making a book of snippets from conversations from the podcast or of actual edited conversations with introductory essays. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I wrote a proposal. I sent it to one friend who is in the business. And she gave me back notes that were very valuable, but they were all about how to make it super digestible and marketable and I have Mm -hmm. not approached that proposal since I think I'm just not built for it like you if someone is ever like I read this and I'd like to publish it Mm -hmm. great Mm -hmm. or if I ever write something that's more self-contained I Mm -hmm. will and if I won't then won't
0: I just finished an incredible book that I want to promote to people like us um Beth Pickens do you know who Beth Pickens is she's uh, Allie Liebigat's wife okay um And she is a, uh, she's like a, she's like a coach or a therapist or a counselor for artists. She helps artists navigate the world, um, and write grants and do all the administrative things that we're so terrible at. She's like a fucking angel and so she wrote this book called your art will save your life or maybe your art can save your life. I don't know, but it's, uh, it's a, it's a quick read and it's, it's just, it's been very inspiring to, to help me see that I'm not alone in this, um, struggle and that, uh, and that there are ways to to re-enter my practice, and that it's not it's not an option just to let it slip away. I,
1: yeah. I will get it for me and mm-hmm. for Anya. Oh yeah. Uh, what's her name again?
0: Beth Pickens. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Which leads nicely into: Did you happen to read that story?
0: Mm. Oh yeah, so, the Simon Rich story. Yes.
1: Let me let me give a little. I, I, I asked Sarah if she would be interested in reading a story from my last guest, Simon Rich, called Relapse about an, a former semi rock and roller of some renown who had retired to become a sounds like wife and mother and who got the bug again and was starting to write songs. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to say, say more about it without the spoiler effect.
0: I know. I don't and either. So I
1: think we're just gonna have to spoil it. Okay. So it starts to <laughs> seem like at the beginning, and then I'll ask you to talk about it, a story of redemption, of starting to make art again, of okay. feeling good about yourself, and breaking back out. And she she goes and she finds her old friend, who, who who was was he a producer? No, he
0: he's a musician. He was a musician,
1: and she went to his house and she played him beginning of the song and he suggested a producer for her to go and meet with and then she goes to meet with the producer and it's actually an intervention
0: intervention
1: for her to prevent her from the horrors of beginning to make art again because it's too late and she should give up and I want to say that, that Simon's work does not often do this mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. often punches up mm-hmm. at more powerful you know movie makers or and and this one story hit me pretty hard mm-hmm. and she goes away to a camp uh, uh, you know a deprogramming uh, center yeah. to yeah. get over her rehab. desire to make she art again she goes to
0: art rehab yeah. where they prescribe rosé rose <laughs> and painkillers and painkillers <laughs> Uh, so it is kind of funny. Oh, it's but sad. It it was is so sad. sad. Yeah, it's funny and sad. I was, yeah, no, I, I really, I was, of course, hoping the story was going to go in a different direction and yeah. felt a little, like, felt a little abused by the, by the turn it took. Um, How
1: it, it really made me be like, oh, maybe mm-hmm. I shouldn't be. And I'm just getting back to writing. And mm-hmm. I read that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm sure if he were in the room or if I had asked him, he would say I really obvious, don't want people to take it's that. It's obviously
0: to heart. tongue in cheek. Yes. But it also speaks to a very real cultural phenomenon, which is that people do look at artists as people who are still pursuing childhood dreams and haven't settled into the business of being adults yes. and being responsible.
1: Unless they've hit the art lottery.
0: In, yeah. Unless they are uh, successful yes. in the way that, uh, you know, a banker or, an, or a lawyer is successful and, and very few artists achieve that <laughs> yes. kind of success. So the rest of us get seen as failures and see ourselves as failures. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: And either fame or money are the only two real redemptive Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be rich Mm -mm. if you're uh, like a niche legend. Yeah, if you're like a
0: cult uh, hero. A cult hero, Uh yeah. You don't have to be. But people will assume that you're at least (laughs) able to pay your bills if you have any degree of fame. And they're probably wrong. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's very little, very little monetary reward in the arts um, most people are just scraping by unless they are being supported by somebody else which is great nice work if you can get it Um,
1: yeah even when I think about friends who I think of as having made it in a huge way they're Mm -hmm. in museums I mean aside from someone like Chris Johansson who I think does make a probably is set the next step down mm-hmm. to someone like Simon Evans, mm-hmm. he, yes, he can sell paintings for thirty thousand dollars now, mm-hmm. but he'll make ten paintings over three years, and then he has to sell those paintings yeah. and then get back to work. Yeah, you know, there's no there's no steady stream of income in between for these yeah. people, but okay. people feel like they're they're mm-hmm. you know super successful. But I'm glad you had that same reaction. I feel, and that, and that you and I, I, as I was saying earlier, I hope we will go on and collaborate on performance and support each other as writers. For
0: we have to support reason. each other because the world ain't doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well. Thanks. Do we have anything do you else have any, to talk about? Do you have
1: yeah? any other thoughts that you thought? Thoughts you thought. You leading Thought, into this thoughts
0: I thunk leading in uh, not that I can think of right now I'm sure I thunk yeah. really really brilliant thoughts that are not occurring, occurring well, to me right well, now we can always
1: do it again when your marketable book comes
0: I'll, out can I call you in the middle of the night and yes. give you some slurred brilliant thoughts always. that may or may not make it into this episode. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> oh you do that <laughs>
1: you know, we might actually sell a podcast more dirt oh. <laughs> go no, and I'll release it once you write that hit book.
0: Really? That's when
1: the slurred midnight That's ramblings slurred <laughs> cash money.
0: <Get> capitalized on. <laughs> yeah. it? Oh Jamie. I would never so do it. diabolical. I would
1: never do it. <laughs> I think it. I did come up with a thought.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. It's nice. Nice to chat.
1: You can find Sarah Wisby on the internet by googling s-a-r-a-h-w-i-s-b-y or by going to her website, which is s a r a h f r a n w i s b y s-a-r-a-h-f-r-a-n-w-i-s-b-y.com You can find all episodes of this show by going to 15minutesjamieberger.com That's the numerals one five and then m-i-n-u-t-e-s-j-a-m-i-e-b-e-r-g-e-r.com or you can find us on Patreon as well and pretty much everywhere you listen to podcasts. Ed Patnode is the intrepid engineer of the show. Christian Kandari made our theme song. Coming up next is part two of my conversation with former Playboy editorial director Christopher Napolitano, and then we'll have more episodes from the live show, including words and music from Zach Trojano, whose new album is coming out soon and is wonderful. This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Burger.